Good evening. I'm Jill Tiefenthaler, the president of Colorado College, and I want to welcome you to tonight's lecture celebrating the Cornerstone Arts Week initiative. I want to begin by thanking all of those who made tonight's lecture and the Cornerstone Arts Initiative a reality. This really is a CC community effort. So thanks to the Cultural Attractions Fund, Mellon Foundation, NEH Professorship, Idea Space, Department of Drama and Dance, and Student Life for their contributions. Colorado College has been fortunate to have the Cornerstone Arts Initiative for 12 years. This program stresses collaborative interdisciplinary arts teaching linked by current and developing technologies. And tonight, we could not be more fortunate and excited to have Jaron Lanier with us. Mr. Lanier is a scientist, composer, visual artist, and author. He has spent his career at technology's cutting edge, beginning with his pioneering research in virtual reality, a term he coined. His company, VPL Research, created the first multi-person virtual worlds, the first software avatars, and the first commercial virtual reality equipment. While at VPL, Mr. Lanier and his colleagues developed the first implementations of virtual reality applications in surgical simulation, vehicle interior prototyping, and virtual sets for television production. After VPL's patents were acquired by Microsoft in the late 1990s, Oops, sorry, Mike, sorry, son, yep. In the late 19, it's a good thing I have him on the side here. Uh, Mr. Lanier became the chief scientist of Advanced Network and Services, a nonprofit that built and maintained a large section of the internet for the NSF and served as the lead scientist of the National Teleimmersion Initiative, a coalition of research universities studying advanced applications for the internet. From 2001 to 2004, Mr. Lanier was visiting scientists at Silicon Graphics Incorporated, where he developed solutions to core problems in telepresence and teleimmersion. He was scholar-at-large for Microsoft from 2006 to 2009 and partner architect at Microsoft Research since 2009, where, by the way, he worked on Connect for the Xbox, which my son loves. Okay. <laughs> In 2005, Mr. Lanier was selected as one of the top 100 public intellectuals in the world by readers of Prospect and Foreign Policy magazine. All of this work led Time magazine to name him one of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2010. This was the same year his critically acclaimed book, You Are Not a Gadget, was released. Mr. Lanier writes and speaks on numerous topics, including high technology business, the social impact of technological practices, the philosophy of consciousness and information, internet politics, and the future of humanism. His writings have appeared in the New York Times, Discover, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Harper's Magazine, The Sciences, Wired Magazine, and Scientific American. And he's also edited special future issues of Spin and Civilization magazines. Mr. Lanier has received an honorary doctorate from New Jersey Institute of Technology, was the recipient of Carnegie Mellon University's Watson Award, was a finalist for the first Edge of Computation Award, and received a Lifetime Career Award from IEEE in 2009. Please join me in welcoming Jaron Lanier. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming out. Uh, 
So I've started, I have a career as a musician too, and I've started uh, bringing odd instruments to my lectures. And I discovered something that shocked me today, which is um, in this altitude, I don't have as much breath as I thought I would. <laughs> and it, it's particularly embarrassing for me because I grew up not that far from here in New Mexico and not that much lower. And, um, but I guess just like all this uh, beachside you know, lifestyle for all these decades just kind of has taken its toll. Um, but I'll, I'll start with one, and then I'll play another one later. Um, I thought of this one, because apparently there's a picture of me playing this on the Wikipedia, and I never play it, and I need to do it to make the Wikipedia accurate. Um, so, uh, uh, no, it's a duty these days, you know, it's like something you just got to do. So, um, uh, it's, um, it's kind of a catchy thing. It's sort of phony and sort of real, depending on your perspective. It's... Um, there, so there's this. Uh, there were f flutes in various Native American tribes. Nobody quite knows how ancient they are. Nobody quite knows what was going on because the uh, the onslaught the onslaught of Europeans was so thorough that we lost a lot of information. But um, there's a resurgence of Native American flute, and they look like kind of one of these. And so this is three of them together, and they sound great. I mean, it kind of sounds more like an Eastern European multiple flute instrument. That's what inspired it. And it's not made by a guy who's Native American so far as I know, but he's a great guy. And I've seen actual, you know, real Native Americans playing these things. I think it's turning real, and it sounds cool. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play it with a few more breaths than I expected to need. Oh, wait, this one. Let us dig in to the topic at hand. And the topic at hand is what are we doing to ourselves with all this digital gear? What exactly is going on here? Um, I love playing with digital stuff. I really enjoy it. I'm very pro-technology. I spend most of my time working in science and tech, and I'm committed to it. Um, I find great pleasure in getting things like Connect to work. I think it's just cool and uh, pleasure, an, an art, a form of fun, a form of expression. Um, so I'm not in any sense anti-tech. And yet, and yet, I'm quite concerned that we've taken some wrong turns and that in the context of being comfortable with technology, in the context of working on it and being committed to it, it's really a fine time to be quite skeptical about a few of the specifics that we've taken on. Uh, I find that it's sometimes a bit tricky to do that because the geeky world has become a little conformist for my taste. And we tend to have a lot of groupthink and a lot of people who are just sure about what's right and wrong. And so 
like for instance with the SOPA bill recently, I actually think it was a stupid bill and kind of badly put together, but the incredible intensity of the demand that you conform to the anti-SOPA line in order to be part of the community was a real problem, was much more of a problem for free speech than SOPA would have been. Hey, do you know what I'm talking about? Does anybody not know what I'm talking about? Okay, look, if I start using some reference and you don't know, just tell me and I'll explain it. Don't be shy, okay? One of the key things about the digital era is not to be shy because you'll just get left behind. Like just, just say whatever you don't understand and fix it for yourself. Um, what is SOPA? All right. SOPA, um, there's a well-established collection of lobbies in Washington and in other governments that for many years have represented media industries. And um, <clears throat> I personally have benefited from them because aside from doing digital stuff, I've also been a recording musician and whatnot. And so there are these organizations that run around and collect royalties and um, track down people who show movies without having made an arrangement and that sort of thing. And these lobbies have been going after, the, after various governments. In the US, there were two bills called SOPA and PIPA that were the House and Senate. I might have that backwards. And uh, the idea was that they would strengthen the ability of law enforcement to go after rogue elements online who would facilitate people streaming their videos without permission or payment. And then the online world really, really doesn't like this. Silicon Valley companies really, really, really want everybody to be able to do what they want online because, ah, now here we have a problem. You see, it's often easy to criticize one thing, but then you also have to compare it to its alternative. And so in this case, we've grown up with this, we've grown up, I, we really started as kids with the internet, so we've grown up with this idea that information wants to be free, and so you wouldn't dare in Silicon Valley culture tell somebody, you can't copy that file. Uh, and I'll go into exactly how we got there, because it's really interesting. The original design for the internet didn't, didn't have any copying, but because, you know, if there's a network, you don't need to copy things. The original's always there. So we always thought, in the first phase of the internet, we thought copying was for dorks. But then copying became this celebrated thing. And the reason why is really interesting. It's because as soon as you make copies, you lose the provenance, meaning you don't know where it came from, which on the one hand means that the person who made the thing originally can't be paid, but it also means you don't know what it is. You don't know what the hell you're dealing with. And so it creates the room for these companies like, um, I'll, I'm going to rat on Microsoft instead of competitors since that, that deals with the problem of my potential conflict of interest. So instead of saying Google, I'll just say Bing. So <laughs> it, allows, um, it allows Bing. <laughs> no, really, it just solves it. Because, I mean, we all know each other. I don't feel, I mean, oh, God. Anyway, um, it, it allows Bing to then make money by searching everything and explaining what the hell it is that you're looking at, where otherwise it would just be this meaningless fragment, right? It, it, it recontextualizes thing after the links of where things came from have been lost. Anyway, I'll go into that in a bit more detail in a second. So SOPA, but SOPA says, no, you can't copy things if they're not supposed to be copied. And so the internet just went into um, extreme political mode with the Wikipedia um, shutting down for a day and a bunch of other sites doing so in protest. And it created this, needless to say, this enormous storm of complaints to DC, which killed the bills. 
and um, let the internet flex its power. The problem remains that um, an alternative really ought to be articulated because the status quo is not working in my opinion. But we'll get into that. In fact, why don't we do that now? Let's start early. <clears throat> I'm gonna go back some years. It's hard to choose exactly what the best starting point is. Um, Aristotle provides a nice starting point. That's <laughs> true, it's true. You can think of Aristotle as the first technology writer. There's, uh, and, and what's great about him as a technology writer are the two technologies he particularly focuses on are musical instruments and looms, both of which turned out to play critical roles in the future of technology and are still central. But anyway, there's this marvelous Aristotle quote where he's, uh, and it's translated in different ways, but it's approximately saying, you know, if the lute could pluck its own strings, and if the loom could operate itself and just weave, you know, we really wouldn't need all these slaves. People could just be free. But a thought. And, and he kind of leaves it there. Now, you can read Aristotle on these particular technologies in, in other uh, examples of his writings. They're, 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 they're funny. Um, there's a great example where he's uh, ratting on and on about these these um, raucous men who get together and aren't imaginative enough to have a good time unless they hire these horrible musicians to entertain them as well. And wouldn't we be better off without them? I mean, it's, it's hilarious stuff, actually, and very familiar and very contemporary. And I'm thinking, yeah, man, I know what you mean. <laughs> but in fact, there's, there's another, um, there's a, there are a couple of ancient Greek garbage dumps that are gradually being torn apart and little scraps of writing are being found. And there was an ancient joke uncovered <laughs> that went like this. <clears throat> the, um, you know, the musicians on the, on the Agora were charging a drachma to play, but two drachmas to stop playing. And you realize, you know, I hear that joke every day around musicians. Like, that's actually, in a sense, in a sense, that joke is the heart of capitalism. It really is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll get there in a second, and I'll explain why. So, um, so, so Aristotle's quote is just an amazing thing that if the machines could operate themselves, we could get rid of these slaves. So in case you don't realize it, this ancient democracy of, of Athens actually was a slave state. Um, and in fact, if you look at any of the ancient societies, they relied on slavery. And I think it's a reasonable thing to say that without decent technology, that was kind of the only way to sort of start to do something, to start to create some space in which civilization could happen. That's not to excuse it, but uh, I think that the improvement of machines has given us the wiggle room to become more moral. And this can get to be a tricky thing. Um, I often um, run across people who want me to be anti-technology, who want me to be a sort of Rousseauian, back to nature, isn't this technology all horrible? And what I always say is that while technology can never be confused with human judgment, human ethics, human morals, human choice, in my opinion, without good technology, all of those things are reduced, they're squeezed. The better technology you have, the more choice you have, if you choose to execute, if you choose to recognize your choice and take responsibility for it. And that's what I think we're not quite doing right now. So 
it's also amazing that Aristotle was, was looking at this and sort of um, recognizing a couple of things that are astonishingly precocious for his time. One is he's recognizing that the future could be different from, from the present because of technological change. I can't find any earlier recognition of that fact. So that's a, that's a remarkable thing, that simple thing that we take for granted. If you look at ancient cosmologies, they're often either cyclic or sort of uh, eschatological, where you run into some kind of end time for everything breaks. Um, but this notion that the future could just be better indefinitely is really first seen, so far as I can tell, in this little quote. It's also remarkable that he recognizes at least the possibility that the slaves could be freed. He, he's not advocating it. I mean, let's not make any mistakes about that. But on the other hand, he's at least seeing the choice exist, which is, or could exist. And that's remarkable. So let's zoom ahead. And I'm trying to think where our next stop might be. We could talk about Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. That's kind of a fun one. Um, this was the... <laughs> This was the occasion when people started to realize that better technology could actually be kind of a problem and a threat. So what happened is <clears throat> just before Mary Shelley wrote, you know the story of the writing of Frankenstein. She was off on a hippie weekend with a bunch with some of her lousy guy friends and wrote this thing. But anyway, um, the uh, just before that, there was this character who was. Um, uh, a showman, but also a physician, and what he would do is he would get corpses, very recently deceased corpses, and electrocute them on stage in front of an audience, and they would twitch, and then he would proclaim, with this understanding of the technology of electricity, we are on the verge of mastering life and death. And it reminds me so much of a friend of mine named Ray Kurzweil, who's kind of doing a, but that's another tale. And... Um, and so, uh, so there was a sense of, wow, you know, technology getting better really can change what it is to be human. And this was the, it was this guy's antics that really spurred this remarkable piece of literature that started that conversation explicitly. But let's move ahead to the 19th century where things really get going. So in the 19th century, we start to see for the first time this very interesting dynamic where better technology can put people out of work. So very strangely, you have this contradiction where getting more competent actually hurts people, which is kind of not the point of improving technology. So there are a couple of examples of this. Um, and it was a huge part of 19th century pop culture. The Ballad of John Henry is a great example, which is a, one of the most famous songs from that, that whole century. And it's about a guy... John Henry, who's competing with an automatic, with a machine that lays down railroad tracks. And at the end of the song, the man does win the contest, but he dies from exhaustion in the process. Um, there are many, many other examples. There were waves of fear that machines would take over. Really kind of amazing stuff. Um, the, current, the current range of options that we have in our politics and in our economics and in our pop culture are all direct descendants of this first conversation about what machines would mean to people that happened in the 19th century. And in a sense, I'd like us to be able to move on from it, but let's talk a little bit about it. Um, one of the principal uh, pr uh, thinkers in this uh, early conversation was Karl Marx 
who as early as 1840 was writing about this problem that better technology could just mean obsolete people and what do you do with those people. And in fact, if you read Marx as a technology writer, if you just imagine that he's writing for Wired magazine, he makes a lot more sense than if you think of him in terms of all the stuff that happened with Russia and China, which kind of doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so uh, I, I first realized this one time when I was driving innocently or as innocently as you can drive in Silicon Valley. And, <laughs> and on the radio is this very pleasant radio voice, this guy with a nice deep voice, going on and on about breaking down market barriers and moving labor and capital here and there and all da da da. And I thought to myself, it's another one of these stupid startups that's going to optimize the world on some computer network. I'm sick of hearing about these Silicon Valley startups on the radio. Well, they shut up already. This is just like a thousand other of these startups. Just get your funding and shut up. Shut up. And then the announcer says, this has been an anniversary reading of Das Kapital by Karl Marx. <laughs> And I, I, I hadn't realized I was on the lefty station, KPFA. So, so um, you know, I, I, it's a, you know, you couldn't sustain that illusion for a long stretch of Marx. But for passages, it's really remarkable that he's. You, you can really see him as a technology writer. And so, Marx just observed something extremely clear, which is that machines are getting better, technology is getting better, and if you extrapolate it into the future, um, they ought to be able to do a lot. And at some point, there ought to be. A, reduced roles, necessary roles for people. So Marx imagined a world after the machines got really good <clears throat> that had some specific qualities. He imagined beautiful manicured lawns. He imagined we'd all be taken care of by the machines. We would practice archery and read the classics. Now, um, he, this might sound pleasant. It, it's not so bad. I mean, there are worse things, right? But the problem here is that in Marx's solution, somebody has to decide what you want and what's good for you. And you also enter into this cosmology that's different than the one Aristotle suggested. Instead of a dynamic one where the future is different from the past, you enter into this weird Groundhog Day bubble where now everything's perfect and we're just going to be this way. That's kind of strange, isn't it? Um, and what if you don't like archery? You know? <laughs> like, and so this is really... The issue with uh, the problem with Marx's stuff, which I think was pretty well intended, but the problem is that to use politics to decide what life should be like and to try to settle it for once and all politically really screws people over. It might sound good at first. Um, now, I kind of first realized the problem with this by trying to live in group households. And um, the thing about is that still popular? Do you guys do that? So you get together, and then you have these meetings about, like, which, whose food got eaten and all this stuff. And at a certain point, it's like if there's just a few people, and they all like each other, and they get along, it's fine. But it just takes that one extra person, like you're four, and then suddenly there's five. And suddenly, like, there's this tumultuous, horrible chaos, and people are crying and moving out. And it's just politics is really hard. Politics doesn't scale, as we say in the tech world. Um, and... Uh, I wish it did. Um, there's another, there's a quip from another early figure, Oscar Wilde. He said, the problem with socialism is too many meetings. And that is a precise criticism. That's not just funny. He nailed it. So uh, you can't make life be about that. Okay, so then there was another response to this sense that machines could displace people. And that's what we call science fiction. 
if you look at the earliest science fiction from H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, Mark Twain, who was a science fiction writer at Times, one of the first ones, and many others, you'll see that the first wave trying to conceive how people would be different in the future was all about machines getting better. Then came the aliens. Now, uh, a, a, a prime early example of this is uh, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, which is still worth uh, reading. Or you can watch the kitschy movie if you want. Um, and the, in The Time Machine, there's a guy with a time machine, you know, you might suspect. And um, he moves forward, and, and it turns out that in the far future, humanity has evolved into two distinct species. Anybody remember their names? Excellent. All right. So um, in this future, you have uh, one species that is kind of owns the servers. They're Zook. They, they own, they own, they're, they're the hedge fund manager. They benefit from, they're the 1%, whatever. And um, then there's everybody else who's kind of, the, who are the left behind ones. Who, and, and the interesting thing, the sophistication of Wells was that he didn't portray a world in which the, the beneficiaries of technology are like partying and happy and everything's great for them and then all, the ones on the outside are just miserable. Instead, uh, they're both miserable. They're both debased. They're both, they're both suffering in their own ways. They've both become absurd. And I'm sure that Wells is right about that. And that particular theme, that sequence of ideas has become central to science fiction ever since. And you can find it, you can find traces of the time machine in perhaps the majority of socially oriented science fiction since then. Um, another great kitschy movie is Zardoz from the 60s. That's the same thing. Um, or uh, a novel called Player Piano by Kurt Vonnegut is another one. Um, but I think we can see it in The Matrix and in many other recent science fiction movies as well. So uh, here we have kind of two ideas about what the future could look like as machines get good. One of them is Marx's idea. Well, the machines will take care of us. We won't really need to earn a salary anymore, so we'll just form committees to decide what, what's good for us once and for all. Ugh, that's, that's kind of creepy when you really get into it. Or you have the Wellsian future, which is it'll just suck. Give it up. <laughs> this is going to be terrible. It's hopeless, it's miserable, forget it. Um, the, the it's hopeless kind of a thing had a lot of precedence um, as well. I mean, there's, um, I mentioned Rousseau earlier, this notion of just going back to nature, trying to find some sort of better life and some sort of authenticity in less technological earlier times. Um, that's phony. I mean, if you look at history honestly, the further back you go in history, the more slaves, the more misery, the less life the less health, everything was just disgusting. It's true. I mean, machines really have made things better. Um, and uh, there was the, then there's the Malthusian idea, you know, that we will, overpopulation or other trends, we'll, we will uh, destroy ourselves, which in the current version of that is global warming. Um, all of these ideas were in play. However, a very interesting thing happened after the turn of the century in about, I think, 1907, I might have the year wrong, when a dashing novelist named E.M. Forster wrote what he meant as a sort of an answer or a retort or maybe a satire of science fiction, of H.G. Wells and the like. And this was a short story called The Machine Stops. Who's read it? 
Oh, you got to read it. All right, the next thing you do, the next thing you do after this is you go and find this thing. So Ian Forster is best known as uh, the novelist from, who, from whom were derived kind of expensive and um, like very uh, fine-toned chick flicks, uh, like Room of the View and <laughs> these sorts of things. But he also wrote this amazing short story. And the thing about this short story is it's written in 1907, way before computers existed, way before any of this stuff, and it completely nails it. It describes the internet, it describes Facebook, it describes Skype, it describes how software breaks down and sucks, it describes the social controversies about whether people are spending too much time with it, all that stuff, it's all in the story. It's just amazing. It's the most um, impressive feat of prescience I'm aware of in human history. There's, no, there's nothing else like it. It's really strange to me that you, ha you don't know about it, so go read it, the machine stops. So in The Machine Stops, there are all these people who are tweeting, and they're on Skype, and they're on Facebook, and they're all obsessed, and they're, they're using the Wikipedia. Not with those words, but if you read it, you'll see it's the same stuff. And um, gradually, they're all, they're, they're all realizing that they're actually in this Wellsian dystopia, and that nothing is real, and they're actually miserable. And then the, the, the internet breaks down. And unfortunately, life has become dependent on it, so a lot of people die, and it's very bad. But a few make it out of their cubicles, and they say, the sun, the sun. And that's the end of the story, a sort of a Rousseauian ending. And so if you ever see, like, whenever Twitter's down, they've gotten a bit better about that. But Twitter used to break a lot, and there'd always be these little postings saying, the sun, the sun. That's what that was about. Um, so um, see, you've got to know this stuff. It's like it's 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 kind of amazing to me that um, I mean there there's really a question like does it does this history matter does it matter knowing where all this stuff came from from centuries back I think it really does I think without it you can't know where you are or what's going on I think you really have tunnel vision without history but otherwise you can just pay attention to whatever the prank of the week is on YouTube and ignore this stuff but you'll you'll empower yourself the more you understand how it all works and where it came from all right so. We entered the 20th century with this set of dismal choices about what to do about how to live with better and better technology. The dismal choices are, go socialist, just expect it to suck, or try to be on the winning side even though that'll suck too. That's approximately what we entered the 20th century with. So, uh, and that's how, that's how things stood. Um, in the course of World War II, computers were invented and digital stuff started to actually exist and be real. In, at that time, an, another idea was born, which I think is worth talking about. How many of you know about the Turing test? Oh, we're doing a little bit better here. How many, about, how many of you know about Turing's death, how he died? Huh. Still a minority, but it's kind of moving here. So, Alan Turing's the principal inventor of the digital computer, probably. He is, um, or at least he's one of the two people who came up with the math that underlies computation as we understand it. During World War II, he was more than that. He was the first hacker, or the first cracker. He was the first person to use a computer to hack into enemy systems and break secret codes. And specifically, the Nazis had a secret code that was called Enigma, and you decoded it by using this cigar box-shaped thing that you had to wind. And it's like... This is much earlier technology, but he cracked it using a computer, this huge, you know, uh, crazy digital machine. And uh, this was, he was just really a brilliant mathematician. And 
by cracking the Nazi secret code, he opened a window into Nazi planning for Churchill that probably reduced by a huge margin the amount of damage that England suffered during the war and probably many other countries as well by bringing the war to an earlier conclusion. So he was treated, rightfully so, as one of the great heroes of World War II. However, there was a problem, which, he was which is that he was living an illegal identity. He was gay at a time when that was not legal. So he got into some sort of stupid situation where that came out, um, and uh, he was, so what do you do? You have somebody living an illegal life, but really significant major war hero, plus a big part of the brain trust of the time. You can't just kind of throw him in jail, right? So what do you do? Well, <clears throat> he was subjected to a bizarre quack medical scheme that was supposed to correct his homosexuality and make him straight. Now, we have to remember something about that time, which is the bad metaphors we had for ourselves weren't digital yet. They were still based on the steam engine because that was the last big thing that everybody kind of got. And so in steam engines, it's all about managing the pressure here and the heat. It's all thermodynamics and chambers and things moving about and pressure building up here or there. So the idea was that he was oversexed. There was like all this pressure. And the way you relieve it, you certainly can't open a spigot because then he'd go out and be sexual and that, that's not acceptable. So what you have to do is you have to counterbalance it with an opposite pressure, which would be female hormones. So he was given massive doses of female hormones under house arrest. He developed breasts. He developed um, a female body and he did not want that. He became horribly depressed and he staged um, one of the most... Um, awful and ironic suicides imaginable, he laced an apple with cyanide and ate it in his lab next to the first computer. So that was the end of the inventor of computers. Did you know that? That's where we come from. That's where our field came from. So um, very recently, in the last couple of years, due to an outcry about it, the British government officially apologized for this, but it took that long. Now, Turing, just before he died, in the weeks before his suicide, wrote up another key idea that's become part of the legacy that we're dealing with. And this is known as the Turing test. And it's a thought experiment. In, in those days, thought experiments had a lot of weight because Einstein had used thought experiments to come up with his ideas and they were powerful enough to blow up cities and whatnot. So everybody took this stuff really seriously. Turing's thought experiment was based on a Victorian parlor game. In this parlor game, you would put a man and a woman behind some sort of barrier, and they would only be allowed to communicate by passing little strips of paper with writing. So it was essentially simulating Twitter and, or, or, or SMS or something. So they could, they, could, they could only message. And then a judge would have to be able to tell purely from these messages which was the man and which was the woman. And of course, they could both be trying to fool the judge. And apparently, this was hugely popular and amusing for many people. I have trouble seeing it myself, but anyway, that was, it was like a big deal for a while. So um, Turing said, get rid of the woman, and let's put a computer in there. And what he said is, if, if the computer could fool the judge, so the judge couldn't tell who was the man and who was the woman, wouldn't we be compelled to offer status of some kind, rights, recognition, empathy to the computer. 
And he let it stand there, and then he died. So we don't really know what his answer was going to be. Um, we have little scraps of additional thoughts from him. He wrote it up twice in two different ways, and he mentioned it in like footnotes for various articles around the same time. So we have a bit of a picture of his thinking about it, which was certainly in process, in motion, and quite sophisticated. But at any rate, what he did was he gave birth to the nerd at that moment. He gave birth to a whole new way of being, a whole new way of conceiving what it is to be human. And this is a way of thinking of the world as being made of information, of people being subroutines in the great computation of reality, of machines and people as being essentially equivalent, except maybe with different programs, of collections of people being bigger and superior programs to single people, of the whole of people connected over the network being a superorganism of greater importance than individual people, all these sorts of ideas which are now absolutely mainstream and probably dominant in digital culture. So I want to describe a little bit about how important these ideas have become just so you can understand that. And then I'd like to um, trash them, if that's okay with you. Uh, so let's start with an understanding of how influential they are. Um, there's an idea called the singularity, uh, which was first articulated by John von Neumann, who was the other great inventor of computers and uh, worked with Turing in the early days when Turing was alive. And in, in a similar time frame, I think a few years after Turing's death and, and the, Turing, uh, the Turing test paper, von Neumann speculated, you know, if these things really can be alive, um, a robot or a computer program or something could design its own successor and make a better version of itself, and then that one could design a better successor still. And pretty soon that could accelerate, and in a blink of an eye, they could really become so much smarter than us, we wouldn't even know what hit us. Just everything would suddenly change, and they would be the superior beings that would just take over. And this, is, this could happen. So that's the singularity, which you might hear about. I heard about it first from a wonderful man who was a generous mentor to me when I was quite young, named Marvin Minsky, who's one of the founders of the field that's called artificial intelligence. And at the dinner table, he'd talk about, oh, you know, any day now, these robots would suddenly become super smart and take over. Um, this idea is huge. Um, intermingled with the Google campus is a special university in Silicon Valley called the Singularity University. And I'm almost making fun of them because I think it's ridiculous. But And there, I, I just actually got another call from some of them saying, oh, we need to meet. We really want to explain. So anyway, and, and like they'll often say, we, we teach legitimate computer science here. And I'll say, yes, but you're calling yourselves the Singularity University. I have to make fun of you. It's just going to happen. Just, you know, that's the way it's going to be. So um, anyway, uh, it's, it's like this huge dogma. And um, Larry Page, one of the Google founders, has talked about how the Google database is going to turn into the memory for the new super being that will inherit the Earth. Ray Kurzweil, who's fun. He's a buddy of mine, but he's also nuts. I say that with great affection. But Ray, Ray is talking about how when this happens, um, the, uh, the great computer in the clouds that becomes super intelligent will scoop up all our consciousnesses somehow through brain scans or something, and then we'll live forever in virtual reality in a heaven in the cloud, um, which to me kind of sounds like Marx's, uh, you know, <laughs> tended gardens with archery. I'm thinking, yeah, I don't want to be in some computer's idea of the, you know, <laughs> indefinite virtual reality we're all supposed to live in. Um, 
there's um, um, it's it's just huge. I mean, if you uh, if you look at even the the um, the IPO of Facebook or at any of the other major documents for the big Silicon Valley companies, you'll tend to see an expression of this idea that we're not just building businesses, we're not just selling ads to you, <laughs> we're not just collecting data from you, but what we're actually doing is creating the super being that will inherit the earth. We're making something better than you. Um, the giant cosmic Frankenstein. We're building that. And um, so, no, no um, I've made fun of it, but I, wanted, I want to trash it in some detail because I think it's a really, really bad idea and it deserves the most thorough dismantling. So let's go back to the Turing test. What's wrong with the Turing test? Um, the interesting thing about the Turing test is that one, I think, legitimate interpretation and one that I think is true is that the only test of whether this machine has come alive or gained human status is the human judge in the first place, right? We, the, the test doesn't say, oh, there'll be some computer that says all the other computers are cool. You know, <laughs> it, it disallows insider trading in, in this sort of <laughs> metaphysical, it, it disallows uh, metaphysical insider trading as it should. So it's up to a human to be fooled in order for the thing to be treated as real. And um, so that means something very interesting. It means that in the terms of the Turing test, it's indistinguishable fundamentally and absolutely whether the computer has really become elevated, has become smarter or more human or whatever, or whether the people have just made themselves into idiots to an increasing degree. The two events are identical. There's no absolute clock off to the side to tell which is which, which is, which is stolen from one of Einstein's thought experiments. Uh, <laughs> So there's no, absolute, there's no absolute determination here. Now, the thing is, you make yourself stupid to use technology all the time. And so once again, in order to rap on Microsoft, in order to be really fair, I'll use Microsoft Word. So you know, do you guys even remember Microsoft Word? Are you all like on your pecking on your iPads now? OK, so, um, it, so in Microsoft Word, you know how you're typing, and suddenly it says, oh, my wisdom tells me that you want an outline. And suddenly you're in outline land. And you say, no, I didn't want an outline. And then you have to undo your outline. And then gradually you learn how to not give it this idea that you want an outline. <laughs> have you been there? OK. Now, the first thing I want to say is that the guy who's responsible for, the, for, it decide, for, for this idea that it knows when you want an outline is a great guy. I've known him since we were very young. Wonderful guy, great friend, see him all the time. But I mean, come on. Um, <coughs> This thing, so the problem is that experimentally, there's no way to tell if this thing is real. There have been a zillion studies about what's really going on here. Because right, I would posit that you're bending over backwards, making yourself stupid to make this thing seem functional. Like, why should you have to be worrying about whether you'll inadvertently trigger an outline desire detector? You're, you're taking on the burden of making it seem smart, just like the judge in the Turing test. Um, but, you know, it's weird that there'll be studies that are apparently comparable that come up with completely different outcomes. Um, I think the funding sometimes has a bit to do with it. But you'll see, you'll see some studies that say, oh, no, it's really more efficient for people. And there are others that will say, oh, no, people are just working really hard to make it seem like it's efficient. We can't tell, just like with the Turing test. Let me give you some other examples. 
you borrow some money you don't need to get a credit rating, you study for a test irrelevant to your subject, you, <laughs> I mean, there are all these algorithms that judge us now. And the interesting thing is whenever you have a huge body of algorithms, or you have a huge body of people who are living their lives to look good to algorithms, eventually it'll turn out they were all making themselves into morons. So that happened with mortgages and credit. It's happened with teach to the test and no child left behind. And it'll keep on happening. Because there's no empirical way to tell if you're making yourself moronic to make an algorithm that's judging you look smart or not. Okay? It's axiomatic. Do you follow this? Okay. All right. <clears throat> and yet, these algorithms that are supposed to be analyzing you and judging you are the core of the online experience as of late, meaning like the last 10 years. That's what Google's all about. We're analyzing what you want. That's what Facebook's all about. We know who should be your friend. That's what we're doing now. That's what we're proffering because we're building the super intelligence in the sky. All right. So um, I... Uh, there's a weird thing about geeky culture, which is that if you have geek cred, you can get a pass. So I can talk like this, and I don't lose my meal card. I still work with all these people. And the point is, my code works, my stuff works, so they can't say anything. So there's a very strange engineering culture where if you can perform on a geek level, you get a pass. And so I'm kind of taking advantage of that to just say what I really think. And it's an interesting social experiment. It's been entertaining. <laughs> what did he say this time? And... <laughs> You know, every time I'm going to write something, like all these people in my lab are like, oh, no, what's going what's to happen? Oh, my God, it's going to be, you know, and it always turns out okay in the end, really. Um, the, the funny thing is that people are actually enough to take it. If you just speak, speak your mind with goodwill, the world doesn't end. It's a, it's a hard lesson. It seems scary sometimes. Uh, I've been trying to show that by example. Okay, so let me talk about a couple of specific ways that you can get screwed up. One way is your sense of self can start to be degraded if you live uncritically within digital systems. And this is something that really does concern me. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. There's no way I can go through some of the big ones in a short talk like this. I cover a few more in the book, and I'll cover some more in future books, I think. But um, you'll see again and again, it's, it's the problem of the Turing test showing up uh, over and over. Um, one of the examples I use in my book is music. Early on, it happened I was present when something called MIDI was invented, which is the digital standard for representing musical notes. And it happened in this haphazard way in, in a garage in, in Silicon Valley, the way all these things do. And it was just a, a one-time thing to connect some synthesizers to another. But like many of these little Silicon Valley garage hacks, it turned into the global standard. And every single one of your phones and computers has this thing running in it to run your beeps and everything. And the, the interesting thing about it is it has a certain kind of very rigid idea about what constitutes a musical note. And it's from a keyboardist's point of view because originally it was to connect some keyboards together. So it's note on, note off, how fast was the key going when it started. That's it. That's enough to describe a note played on a synthesizer keyboard. Now, it's not enough to describe what a violinist does or what a singer does. But it is enough to describe this one kind of idea of a note. Now, this is really interesting because in the whole history of music, there have been many descriptions of what a note is 
in textbooks or from teachers or whatever, but none of them were mandatory. They were all interpretive. If two different people did transcripts of the same music, the particular notes they'd interpret wouldn't be identical. But now, because it's actually a tool, it becomes mandatory. You have no choice if you're going to use MIDI but to accept its idea of a note. There's no way to not do it. It becomes the ground layer of the reality for that, that interaction. So <laughs> there was an amazing fallout from this. One is pop music changed. The whole sort of this, the clubby sound of a bap, 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 the, the sort of the Lady Gaga, Euro trashy clubby sound thing that's is MIDI. I mean, that's what MIDI sounds like. And it appeared with MIDI, and it's never gone away. It's like permanent now. We're gonna, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I mean, it's, it's fine. You, there's, but but it's, it's just a peculiar thing that this hack from a Palo Alto garage has created this multi-generational style. And there's nothing to be done about it. It'll be with us for a thousand years. It'll be Lady Gaga from here to the horizon. It's very weird. And... Um, um, that's not to say that there's no room for it. I think what happened with hip hop is really interesting because it's also MIDI anchored. It's still the bap, 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 the sort of very rigid idea of a note. But I feel like it uses it as protest. It's like, I'm stuck, I'm stuck, I'm stuck, I'm trapped in this stupid neighborhood, I'm trapped with these stupid prospects, and I'm stuck. And so it actually uses it for anger, and it kind of works. So it's not that you can't repurpose these things and speak with them, but you are stuck with them. You can't make them go away if you're going to participate with the software at all. So, um, speaking roughly, what we did to musical notes, which isn't horrible, I mean, it's not like the, the earth is going to stop because there's more bad Eurotrash dance beats in the world or something, or beepy telephone rings. Um, but we're doing that to ourselves now. What's happening is I see more and more people living their lives on the terms set up by digital systems on things like social networking sites or sharing sites of different kinds. So... You see people trying to maximize their followers or their friends or whatever the term is on the particular site. You see people trying to avoid the evil eye on these sites, which is a new kind of conformity. That one really concerns me. Um, there's this tremendous rhetoric that's almost like it's so loud that it's hard to, to even say anything that's different from it. But the rhetoric is that the openness of the Internet is the new freedom and look at Egypt, look at the Occupy movement and all that. And there's validity there. I'm not saying that's not true, but the problem is that within that freedom, there's also tremendous pressure to conform. Within, um, and I mentioned the SOPA and PIPA problem before, and this is one example, but it's only one of many. Within these social worlds, because your world, the world you see is sort of designed for you by our algorithms, if you change, that world goes away. Or to put it another way, if you want to hold on to the world you know, you can't change. So um, let me give, this might not be clear to you. I want to try to explain it. Um, I'm going to, and I have to use some, I have to use some really old references that might be meaningless to some of the people in the audience. So you know who Bob Dylan is? Is that, no, I don't know. I mean, I talk to sometimes undergraduates and never heard of Bob Dylan, so I don't know. Anybody not know who that is? Oh, okay, impressive. This must be a liberal campus. <laughs> so don't worry. I don't have a bad Dylan imitation to pull out of my pocket. You're, you don't have, if you're worried about that, it's not going to happen. But um, the, thing, <laughs> the thing is that Bob Dylan started out as um, Zimmerman. I forget his first name. He, he was Robert Zimmerman. Look at this. 
And so in Minnesota, he's this kid, and he creates this new persona. He invents this new kind of this this new kind of uh, creature um, in New York, and um, he gets away with it. And he bec and he does this really interesting thing. Now, if he'd had a Facebook page in Minnesota. And it traveled with them. You know, if you change your alias, the algorithm will find you eventually. It'll, it'll figure out something and link the identities. So all of a sudden, uh, you know, you can imagine in the early 60s in some coffee house in the village, and there are all these, like, really super cool people with goatees, and the, like, the, the wax melted over the bottle, and they're all, like, waiting for this new hot folk singer to come out. And then, I'm sorry. And, and... And then one of them's there with their iPad saying, oh, look, he's really just Zimmerman. Look at that. He, like, couldn't play basketball. You know, like, it would ruin it. And so um, the thing is, um, oh, that's right. That's right. That's a very good example. Yeah, Lana Del Rey, uh, something similar just happened. Um, and so... Uh, so, so, so right, right now, so, and I mean, people can sort of integrate their older personas if they're very public about it. People have mastered that art. Like uh, Lady Gaga, once again, did something like that with her older student persona or something. So it's not like the end of the world, but it is the end of a certain level of self-invention. It means that you have to um, work with this representation of you that there's this, there's this digital MIDI-like thing that represents you as this on-off note. And you, if you ignore it, you lose something, and so you're stuck in it. And you're, and, and, um, now, look, I'm not going to tell you to quit these things. Um, I personally benefit financially the more you use Facebook, so go for it. <laughs> Do it. Okay? Just to be clear about it, I'm part of it. I'm not talking about some them. I'm, I, in the digital world, I am the 1%. Let me just be clear about that. So I'm, I'm speaking about this not because I think there's some evil them there. Um, a, few of them, a few of us are kind of creepy. Most of them are just geeky. They're fine. They're not, they're not really bad people. Um, the Facebook movie was actually quite unfair to the personalities in many cases. Um, but, uh, but I do think this isn't working. Now, I want to get from... I've talked a little bit about a sort of a personal spiritual angle on it. But what I really want to get to is an economic angle. Oh, by the way... Um, if it seems like I've spoken forever and you want me to stop, somebody should let me, because I don't have any clock here, so I'll just, no way. Five minutes? Are you serious? I haven't even started the main part of the talk. <laughs> oh, what am I going to do? And I want to do questions, too. <coughs> let me try to do this really fast. Economically, if you have a digital network, there are different things you can do with it. Um, one of the things you can do with it is you can concentrate wealth and power for yourself really efficiently as long as you get to the head of the pack to benefit from the network effect. And this is a game that you can play. <coughs> we all play it in the digital world. So what happens is as soon as you get people doing something on your network, they kind of get locked in because they become dependent on the particular way things work in that network and the data available on it and the, the other people on it. A great example is it's super hard to start a new Facebook, right? Any of you could just go home tonight and program a bit and make a new competitor to Facebook, just like Zook did in his, in his dorm room, right? But it's hopeless because everybody's already connected on this other thing and they're locked in. And there's a million examples of that. There's a really great one from early on that people don't appreciate, which is Walmart. 
So in the 90s, I had a consulting gig with them. And what Walmart did is they said, well, we're kind of a boring business. We basically buy stuff and then sell it in these stores. But we can add a digital network to it to keep track of where everything is, and that would change it. And boy, did it. With a digital network added, it was possible for them to know exactly where everything was being made, how much it cost to move it, exactly how much would be willing to pay in this town versus that town, exactly how much would sell in this town versus that town. They got so much data that they were able to optimize the thing. Once they optimized it, a couple of amazing things happened. One is they could make everything cheaper for customers because they optimized it. Two, their customers couldn't go anywhere else because everybody, they became so big so fast as a result that everybody had to change all their practices to work with Walmart. Everybody got locked in, just like on Facebook. And three, and this is the really interesting one, and this is the one I really want you to understand, they offered a really crappy long-term bargain to their customers. And here's what the bargain is. By optimizing really well, we're lowering prices, so you don't have to pay as much. Isn't that great? But by optimizing really well, we're lowering your job prospects. All right? <laughs> we're going to close the factory where you work. All right? So what's happening is that we're, we're making the mistake that Aristotle and Marx and Wells and Foster and all these people had thought about which is, if you use technology to optimize things, you can just make people obsolete. And there's no amount of price reduction that makes up for reduced career prospects. You can't make it up. Now, what you should be thinking, I hope, is, wait a second, getting free use of Facebook and Google might not be enough to make up for what I'm doing not being, being paid for online. You should be thinking that, because that's correct. What you're paying, you are paying for free use of Facebook and Google by having reduced career prospects. And at some point you have to understand that in order to understand the reality in which you live. As soon as you get that, then you'll be dealing with reality instead of being a sheep following our marketing nonsense. I hope you make it there. You really need to. Now, let's talk a little bit about how it works specifically. And I want to mention the solution also that I think exists uh, in two minutes. Um, yeah. <laughs> you don't care about your careers. Why do you want to keep... Okay. So... <laughs> okay. Um. <laughs> okay. Um, let, me, let me try to do this really efficiently. Um, let's, let's suppose I could bring out here a marvelous robot. And this robot would walk out here and I would say, this is a comedy robot. This robot has been optimized by algorithms from Microsoft and Google and Facebook and Apple to be the funniest comedian ever. It combines all of the best funny lines and attributes and timing from all of the best comedians and even from just funny things people said online that were captured on YouTube or whatever. And then this thing, it does this routine and you're all in stitches. That was the funniest robot. And then I tell you, I'm so glad you like that robot. Um, so uh, because we put this robot out here, you're also going to see this ad or something. We have some scheme to make some money off the robot. Now, the interesting thing about that situation is it might not immediately be clear to you, but that robot is selling you back to yourselves because all the data that drives it was derived over the network from individuals. 
if somebody did, said something really funny in a YouTube video and somebody else cracked up, some little humor software, some little humor droid in the Google server farm caught it and captured it and added it to the mix. And there's something like something else like that on Twitter and all of these things were actually gathered from you. Now, what's really happened is a really interesting thing. What's happened is we've, we've pulled off a trick. We've artificially created two sets of books, which is normally called corruption. We've created one set of books for us, which is we own the robot. We can get money for advertising on it. Look at these books. We're going to have an IPO. We're going to make a lot of money. Okay. That's one set of books. The other set of books is, hey, you got to watch the robot for free just for some ads. You benefited. You got free access to a robot. But the set of books that we're not keeping is, hey, all of the content that led to this robot came from you. We're not counting you. Now, there's a really interesting question. If we actually counted honestly and completely, if we actually did real accounting for where information comes from, which is always without exception from real people, since real people are the only sources of real information, everything else is bullshit. Oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. But everything else is fake. Um, if we did honest accounting, there might be enough money flowing through the system to have a growing economy instead of a shrinking economy as the machines get better. There might be enough money to have a middle class. There might be enough money to give people liberty instead of Marx's, you know, um, prescribed lawns and archery. And that's the really interesting possibility. And what's really amazing is that the first technical proposal for the internet, the birth of the internet, was precisely around that idea. But it's forgotten. So what happened is in 1960, before, I mean, 1960 is really early. This is before Marshall McLuhan's major writings. This is before there was any digital networking. This is really, really early. He proposed, you know, we could eventually connect computers together and form this communication thing, kind of like in The Machine Stops. But instead of it being this horrible thing like in The Machine Stops, We'll have a computer network so we can do full accounting for the first time. So whenever somebody does something that's valuable to somebody else, we can have little micropayments flow around. And if we design the net that way, we could have an expanding economy instead of a shrinking one when we make things more efficient. That was the first idea for the internet. That's how it was at first. Now you might wonder, why did it not stay that way? And the reason we lost that, the reason we got into this, oh, information wants to be free, it's all at, the only official business of information is advertising, your contribution isn't accounted for, we get to have real finance, real IPOs, real wealth, but you get to only have a barter and reputation economy and free stuff. We're just going to do a super Walmart number on you. The way we got to that is by a series of ridiculous events, funny, comic, bizarre events. I'll tell you some of them. One of them was that there was this incredibly important lab called Xerox Park that you might be aware of. It was run by the company Xerox, which was the giant corporation that made copying machines. And before there were before there were digital computers, if you had one document and somebody else needed to copy, you actually put in paper into this thing and the copy came out. And so um, Xerox funded this lab um, run mostly by a visionary guy named Alan Kay that designed the modern sensibility of what using a computer would be like. Whenever you use an iPad or a modern computer, the sense of it came from this lab of uh, having like windows and icons and all this stuff. 
And I remember <laughs> this crazy interaction where they were talking and they're saying, so at the time, the very idea of making copies of information on a network just seemed like the stupidest thing in the world because it's a network. The original's still there. It's just inefficient to make a copy. Why would you do that? You know, you might want to have a cached copy just to have, have it run faster or to have redundancy for reliability. But from a logical point of view, why have a copy? It's ridiculous. It's just losing information. Copying is just a form of forgetting part of the information, which is where it came from. Why would you do that? Why would you make it worse? That was the original idea, which I still think is the correct one. So <laughs> I remember Alan and some other people talking, said, you know, our sponsors are Xerox, a copying company. They call themselves the copying company. We simply can't go to them and say, you're putting all this money into this future in which the very logical idea of copying is made obsolete. <laughs> it's just like, it's not a communicable concept. It would be suicidal. So they put copying in the computer, even though it seemed ridiculous. It was, it was to please a sponsor initially. Later on, it was to hide from the cops. So during the 70s, when the computers started to get connected, um, there were two cultures, just as there are today in the US, both of whom were hiding from the cops for different reasons. On the left side, there was um, a certain problem with draft dodging that was still very active as a result of the Vietnam War draft. And there was another issue with marijuana plants. So without naming it, one of the major universities that was an early internet node actually used its computers as warmers for a grow farm at the same time. And, uh, and then on the right side of the, uh, on the, on, on the uh, red side of the divide, there was this huge outrage in the 70s about the 55 mile an hour speed limit and everybody was using anonymous handles on what was called CB radio, which was kind of the um, anonymous, the Twitter of its time or something, and to, just to know where Smokey was, where the police were, so you wouldn't get a speeding ticket. And so um, everybody was either at some sort of military base or something who was on the red side working on the internet or was some hippie at one of the universities working on the internet and both of them were hiding from the cops all the time. So they, so they got into this sort of weird romance that what freedom is is hiding from the cops, whereas what freedom should be is making the cops work for you. That's actually civilization. And so we really blew it on that. And, uh, and I remember there was this sort of like, oh, I copied a file. I'm Che in the jungle. And I'm like, you're not Che in the jungle. You just copied a file. I mean, like, come on. But there was this sort of romance about it. And um, it just got really thick. And um, so I was around a lot of the crucial early nodes of this, and I won't go into the details, but it just became like this dogma of hiding from the man is what it's all about. But the problem with that is we weren't hiding from, we weren't creating an underground, we were creating the new mainstream. And when you design a mainstream purely on the basis of what had once been an underground, you end up with a stupid regime. I mean, that's like one of the most proven recipes for disaster in history, and that's approximately what we've done. But it has this sexy aura about it because we get all this money in the IPOs and all that. So um, what I believe we must do is we must find our way back to what the internet obviously made sense as when it was initially proposed, which is a complete accounting system for the first time where people are recognized for their value uh, so that efficiency doesn't mean unemployment. So what that would mean, for instance, is that whenever Google can translate a phrase, if sometime in the past they reference some translation of yours as an example, you actually get some money for it. It means that it would be, if somebody, if some bank made some money from a derivative, 
based on your behavior as a lender. You'd actually be owed money because you created some of the data they used to place their bet. That would shut down the stupid derivatives market real fast because it would be total accounting instead of only half accounting. That is the way, because see the problem is we don't want to be caught between two dismal alternatives, which is a sort of a socialist alternative or a winner take all alternative, which are the two poles we keep on bouncing back and forth between. They both suck. They suck to smithereens. They suck in ways that would require language I shouldn't use in, a, in order to describe the, the depth of the suckery adequately. <laughs> but this third alternative is what networks were originally for, and it's what we should use them for. So in this alternative, you, you, would, you would sometimes pay to use Facebook. Oh, it's horrible. But you'd also make money from it over time. And it would, be part, it would become part of your retirement over time. I mean, it would give you dignity. It would give you a life you could count on because you'd have an income source out of all you'd contributed. It would be a better deal. We have to get there. It also would be good for Facebook because a rising tide does raise all boats. It would expand the economy instead of contracting it with efficiency. So it would actually even be good for the big companies. Ugh. All right. I think I got it across. All right? <laughs> so uh, do I have time for questions? All right, I'm going to take a few questions. I think there's runners with microphones. Um, and then they, uh, you should all know that there's a, 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 a church book signing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Outside in front of, in the main space. Right, you can buy my book and support the, the lecherous old elite in the face of the, uh, the geeky, insensitive new elite. All right, so who has a question? Did I cover everything? All right. What do you see happening in the next hundred years in the tech world? In the next hundred years, well, okay, in the next lot sooner than that, a lot of jobs are going to go away because vehicles will start driving themselves. So truck drivers, cab drivers, delivery guys, that gets done. Uh, manufacturing jobs go away because I think that will get automated. A lot of um, sort of lower-level white-collar stuff like uh, pharmacists, legal researchers. There have been very uh, compelling demonstrations of robots doing those jobs. So what's going to happen is efficiency will start to take away a lot of traditional jobs, and we still won't even get the flying car, you know? <laughs> uh, and um, I think we're going to live a lot longer if we can afford it. If we can solve the stupid accounting problem, we'll be able to benefit from improved medicine, and I think we have a chance at being... Um, happier and having kind of less stressful lives and losing fewer of our number to car accidents and disease would be really good. Why do you feel the need to draw a distinction between the kind of aggregation that a human being does and the kind of aggregation that a humor bot does? I mean, they're functionally very similar. Yeah, well, I think if a human aggregates other people, the other people should be owed micropayments based on what they do. I think that would be a complete economy, so um, I don't need to make the distinction. I think that would make everybody richer and happier, including the comedian who aggregates. Hi. Where, where are you? Right. Oh, okay. I was just, my first question is how you see um, technology sustaining itself in like this extraction economy. And my second would be, um, when, when do you think that um, slavery originated? Because my understanding was it kind of came with the ideas of technology and agriculture. Yeah, well, I mean, you know what's weird is slavery did originate with technological advancement in the sense that in an earlier phase uh, of hunter-gatherer life, 
you didn't have slaves. You just made your way. But that's a rough life. That That's where you lose most of your kids and where generation to generation you can't build up very much because you're always on the run. Uh, so as soon as people were able to settle down and create intergenerational uh, memory, there were huge benefits, but there also was uh, slavery. And uh, it's nasty. It's a nasty, it, it's a nasty story, but that's the way it was. And then what was your other question? How, how a uh, society could possibly sustain a given Oh, can can we sustain ourselves on resources? You know, for the last 400 years or so, capitalism ha has grown on the basis of an expanding pie that's mostly made of non-intellectual stuff, but only partially made of, but crucially made somewhat of intellectual stuff. So we've conquered territories, had bigger populations, found more natural resources, and obviously all that stuff isn't sustainable. So a really interesting challenge is can we keep this act going just with intellectual advancement where we're not digging up everything and ruining the environment, but we're just getting smarter and smarter in order to do better and better. And um, I don't know, but that's our challenge. I mean, it's not like we have another choice but to try for that. I don't see any other alternative to it. I mean, the, the thing about technology is once you, once you take that apple in Eden, when, once you bite it, you know, presuming that you haven't laced it with cyanide, um, <laughs> once you've... Once you've started down the, the path of being responsible for yourself, everything you do has consequences, and you're constantly undoing whatever you did that was imperfect before. We've entered that game. We have no choice but to continue. There's no, there really is no going back. So there's no, there's no certainty we can pull it off. But I actually think we can. I think we're pretty bright. Yeah. It's like, as you were saying, like going back to the original root of it, don't you think that we could possibly do without the technology itself? Like, Wait, say it again? Don't you think that the root of it is the technology, though? Do you like and acknowledging that? Don't you think that there is a? Well, but no. But I mean, the reason we needed technology is that we were dying and miserable, and all our kids were dying in horrible misery and starving, and life was very short and much, much worse than we can even imagine today. Always, constantly, before technology. So, it's not that we were doing great and we wanted technology and that was a big mistake. It's that everything was really, really horrible, and technology made it better, and then kept on making it better. So, um, yeah, if you doubt me on that, um, I think archaeological sources are really where you have to go. And what you should look at is early lifespans and look at injuries in, in ancient skeletons. I mean, you, there's very, very strong evidence of what life was like. Yeah. I had a question right here. To me, I guess I'm thinking that your description of an accounting, you know, of a, of a general accounting system sort of describes the structure of a meritocracy and where, where everybody has a, of something to contribute. And I'm, and I'm wondering, uh, what about people who, who maybe don't have creative um, energy to be giving the system? What happens to them? Right. So this is the Lake Wobegon problem that everybody can't be above average. And so what I think... Um, what I think happens is something like this. I think what you want is you don't want a society that looks like a U where there are certain people who benefit totally and other people who benefit not at all. And that's where we're headed right now. Um, what we really want is a society that looks like a hump, that looks like a bell curve or something like it, where you have a middle class. And that doesn't... So if there's going to be a society of liberty, if there's a society that isn't prescribed and designed, it does mean that there'll be people on the lower side of it. And my thought about it is that 
in an active economy of the future, um, the people <coughs> at the middle and above are making their living off of pure information and information economy, and the people from the middle and down are doing things that are more physical. Um, guess where musicians are going to be in that? <laughs> I can, you can already see it. Got my musician buddies. Oh, yeah, thanks. You know, I'm still, still in the Agora charging two drachma to stop playing. But um, I think I, 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 um, it won't be perfect, um, but gunning for perfection is a really good way to screw up human affairs. So, um, and I'm not, you have to understand my position here is I'm not a utopian and I'm not a, um, um, I'm not sort of wild-eyed and believing that everything can be made ideal all the time. But I do think that that's a workable world. I think that that's a survivable world. Um, personally, I'd like to see a world in which actual poverty and suffering from lack of basics is absolutely outlawed. All right, so that, that to me should be a no-brainer. I think the, the costs to everybody of that and the cruelty and what it does to our souls to allow it is absolutely not worth it. So that's, that's one part. So, so, but, but, but having said that, um, I, I think that a distribution of that kind is, could be reasonable and could work reasonably well. On that positive note, let, please join me in thanking okay. Mr. Lanier. Thank you. Please join us in the main space.